Hey, this is Coach Freddie here, inspiring people to do things that inspire them, and welcome to the I Have for Evolution, where we'll be discussing the benefits of growing and using industrial hemp for people, planet, and profit. Conversations about the history, legalization, farming, harvesting, processing, building, manufacturing, investing, and how industrial hemp can benefit people's lives, heal the planet, and how it can be used to make thousands of products and boost the economy and business. So, are you ready to join the iHemp revolution? Hey, this is Coach Freddie here, and I'm here with Ed Harrison at his facility in Tennessee. Ed. Tell us a little bit about your company. First of all, what's the name of your company? The name of the company is Smarter Gardens. Smarter Gardens is a name that kind of derived from my time when I was with IBM. And if you remember, they had a little campaign called the Smarter Planet. And the whole idea was that you would be able to take um, various pieces of technology and track uh, elements of information about uh, things that you did, whatever it may be. and be able to make better decisions. Um, so that was where you know the whole idea of the smarter came from. And I had been working in some energy management uh, pursuits at that time and was really in love with the idea of growing, but I couldn't come up with a combination that worked. And I, but I was learning about these different sensors, these different abilities, uh, and I just knew somewhere there was a way to apply it in, in farming. And we're talking probably 2007, 2008. 2009 time frame, so quite a while ago, and then um, I stumbled across some folks that were um, able to, to grow hydroponically, and specifically they understood how to grow cannabis, you know, illegally, I guess, at the time, um, but I was fascinated by what they used to grow, and the key phrase here is uh, controlled environment agriculture. Essentially, you're going into a space, an enclosed space, and you're um, responsible. You're essentially responsible for all aspects of the environment for that plant to reach its full potential. So that's a lot to take on. Now, if once you've done that, you know, once you've accepted that responsibility, you've got this golden opportunity to track the data that is associated with each of those parameters that you're controlling. Um, and as I started cross-referencing the technologies that, that I was familiar with, with what the parameters were that these guys were controlling, uh, or trying to control, I realized, whoa, we've got, you know, we've got a fit. And I couldn't come to that same conclusion with outdoor growing. It, had, it just hadn't, you know, hadn't reached that level of sophistication yet. So um, that's kind of the path that we started down. All right, how do we, how do we actually make this happen? So um, I met with numerous folks along the way, and one of the best phrases was a gentleman I sat down with who was very good at uh, entrepreneurial-type endeavors. And he says, okay, this, this IT stuff, man, this is wonderful. This is really great, but first you've got to grow the food. And we're, uh, we're still in that mode, uh, but I think we've got it. I think we're able to produce a quality product. You've just tasted it. And oh, I don't know. Wish we could no, convey that over the. Oh over yeah. The radio. I mean, it was like uh, the arugula. Uh, what else did we did? We had cilantro, arugula, mustard greens of two types. We didn't do the mints. We had lemon basil, cinnamon basil. Oh yeah. Genovese they were, basil. They were awesome. I mean, they were tender. 
and uh, the taste was unlike anything I tasted yeah. in, in vegetables that you buy at yeah. the market. And that's and that's what most chefs uh, are saying. And so we're we're catering to a very discriminating clientele up in Nashville. Some of these wonderfully creative and demanding chefs, and the fact that we're able to come in with a product year-round that, that they desire, you know, that they demand, that's a good thing. So we know mm -hmm. we're at that space now. And so now it's getting to the level of operational sophistication, control, scalability, all the things that go into making the business more um, successful, profitable, etc. Um, I know you and I have talked and you were talking last night about, you know, people, profit, and uh, planet. That's a core element of what we try to do. And I think some people may be snickering. It's like, oh, wait, this guy's growing indoors. How can he do stuff for the, the planet? But, but really, there are ways. And you start with water. Um, in the late 1970s, I moved to San Diego specifically to get into the solar energy industry. So, I mean, that was what my, my thesis was about when I was in college many, many years ago. And um, it's very near and dear to me. And, you know, ec ecological aspects were really key. Um, one of the things that I've learned is that there are many alternatives to energy, but there are no alternatives to water. You've got to have water. And the systems that we use recirculate the water, reuse the water to the extent that you are probably consuming somewhere on the order of 5 to 10% at most that a traditional agricultural pursuit will, mm -hmm. will uh, utilize. So right there, that's a key, key element. The other thing is by uh, utilizing these methods, we drastically, dramatically shrink the uh, amount of distance that's covered to bring that fresh food into a marketplace and to do so year-round. It's great that um, a farmer produces uh, a crop in a traditional manner and sells it at a farmer's market to a local, you know, a local uh, clientele, but once it comes into the middle of winter, the idea of eating seasonally um, has an element of appeal, but in reality, <laughs> People want a tomato, or they want lettuce, or they want crops that are not necessarily available year-round. Unless you're an absolute purist, that becomes somewhat difficult. So these grocery stores, you know, the whole food industry fills that gap with people of all these different cultures that want this or want that. They're going to, you know, they're going to uh, basically satisfy that desire, and they do it by virtue of the food system that we have today that will route stuff from everywhere. Um, all we're doing is giving people the ability to grow any one of those crops, or most of those crops, in a, an area that's, that's very close to where they live. Um, the other thing is that you can pretty much set one of these up anywhere. We're currently standing 20 feet below the surface of the earth yeah. in, a, in a tunnel where we're about to, to map out, I think, 680 tubs, which can produce um, many hundreds if not thousands of pounds of produce over the course of a year. Yeah. And you're getting into hemp now too. You're growing yeah. some industrial hemp up, upstairs and I looked at it and it that's was really great. Yeah, yeah. That's why you're here. Yeah, that's why we're here. Yeah, the iHemp revolution. Remember yeah, that. That's, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. well, one of the things that's perhaps a little bit unique, and it was by no means any strategic decision on our part, was, you know, we're, we're trying to make leafy greens and herbs. And, and uh, over the past year, we've been able to expand the offerings, experiment with things, like certain varieties, uh, they're just not popular with people, but we'll try one, hey, it grows pretty well, but if people don't care about it, then it's not something that we're going to pursue. Uh, uh, conversely, if there's something that we may even struggle with, 
um, we know that we can work twice as hard to make it work if we know there's a demand. So things like cilantro, or you've tasted the cilantro. It's, yeah, it was great. It's it's good stuff, and and um, in the Tennessee summers, it'll tend to bolt, as will many of the things that we grow upstairs. So by deciding on those things, that's you know basically just tuning the, the offerings to what the market uh, goes for. It was in that context that hemp somehow almost accidentally became a food product. Um, one of the things that motivated me some years ago is uh, I have a daughter that's 25 now and she suffers you know, and has suffered for a long time with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and fresh food was one of the things that helped her but also uh, cannabis was one of the things that really dealt with her pain in a way that nothing else would touch. Um, I'm of the understanding that a lot of the, the cannabidiol that uh, is present in the cannabis plant has been something to help balance systems for people. So I did a lot of research on the internet and found that juicing cannabis was one of the methods that was used to treat a lot of these chronic illnesses. And so kind of held that in the back of my you know, pocket just saying, well, I wonder if I could ever do that at some point. I was approached uh, in January of 2015 by um, Adam Fink, who you've probably mm -hmm. met. And, uh, he had gone to the Entrepreneur Center, met some folks in Nashville that um, knew of me, and he was asking who might be interested in hemp. They sent him my way, and my first response was, what in the heck am I going to do with hemp? It grows 20 feet tall from what I knew. I don't have 20 feet to, to spare, so it just seemed kind of silly, but let's sit down and see what we could do. And so numerous discussions and conversations followed. Uh, and it started end up going to the, the hemp meetings to say, well, maybe we could do this or maybe we could do that. And still, it was something that we held in the back of our back of our minds. We had a hemp crop that we started in January of this year to really help another farmer out who said, maybe uh, if you guys could grow slips for us indoors, which was really all I thought we would be worth uh, able to do. Um, if you guys can do that, then uh, you know we might buy a bunch of slips from you and, and you can make some money. So I started a crop, um, proved that I could transplant it to dirt and you know, do whatever the farmer needed. Uh, but then we hit a point where his plans got derailed and I'm sitting here with a bunch of, of hemp. And I pulled one of the hemps out of the, or hemp uh, plants out and looked at it and said, well, I can't really move this as a, as a viable plant product because it has roots on it and that's the whole, you know, violates your agreement with the ag department. So what did I cut the roots off? Oh, that looks pretty good. <laughs> so I, I, I've been selling a lot of my stuff in clamshells. We just kind of put it in a clamshell. I made a little label that matched my other labels. And I sat there and looked at it. And I was like, my God, this looks pretty good. And then we tasted it. Like, this tastes pretty good. Um, when, one of the cool things that worked for us is the first crop that we had planted in 2015. We were the first guys to take our, our crop in like three weeks after the seed had been made available in, in Tennessee. I took it in to have it tested for THC uh, by the Ag Department, but I brought another bag with me and I said, look, I go over to the University of Tennessee Extension office to have it uh, examined for tissue, basically a tissue analysis to see what the macro and micronutrient content is. And I got some really cross-eyed looks at the time, but I said, no, I, I believe this is a leafy green with a lot of potential and I'd like to at least prove that if we, if we can. So they acceded to my re request and they um, tested or let me go over, let me carry the stuff over. I got some more cross-eyed looks from the people at the UT lab 
but they went through with it and uh, they sent me the results and they were so pleasing. They were so uh, dramatically uh, nutrient dense. And I said, we really have something here. I think I saw those uh, just this morning and they're very similar to kale. The, the hemp plants, yeah, the per hemp. se? Yeah. Um, yeah, from a flavor perspective, you're going to get but more But as far as a, a nutrient. Like, yeah, very similar. So I took my kale, right, I took my kale uh, readings, mm -hmm. and it's actually higher, and, and, a, and a good number of the micronutrients. Uh, the cannabis plant is uh, I don't know, notorious for sucking in all kinds of nutrients in its surrounding. And the, in a hydroponic setting, as we grow, it's like whatever you want to give it, it'll find a way to put it into the tissues of the plant. So from just a pure nutritional perspective, it is a marvelous plant in that regard. When we grow it indoors, um, we are only taking it to about the three-week time frame. And, and, uh -huh. and so what's different about the plant as, as we produce it versus what grows out in the field is there's that inherent delicacy. There is that... Uh, the softness of flavor, the, mm -hmm. the softness of the, the, the plant tissues themselves. Um, once it's been around for a while, it may get thicker, it may get uh, perhaps chewier, and there are ways to get around it, but baby kale, baby arugula, baby mustard greens, so many of the things that we grow that, that can be in that small, relatively mature state, kale, or kale, um, <laughs> the cannabis is no different. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the leaves themselves are absolutely wonderful. And then we found that the flowers, the male flowers and you know, the female flowers, both have their own complexity of flavor. Uh, the profiles, uh, and I'm, I'm dying to find out quantitatively what the terpene uh, uh, profiles are going to be in the various uh, cultivars that are out there. Uh, the trip that we made to MTSU at Middle Tennessee State last night and working mm -hmm. with a medicinal botanical, uh, I said it wrong, I think botanical medicinal laboratory where they are about to compile that for all of the varieties able to grow in Tennessee. I'm real, real interested in how that's going to shake out and then how those flavor profiles can be in turn infused into different dishes that can add that depth of flavor. Mm -hmm. Um, what we've found is as we've cooked with him, my, my wife and I, um, that we'll add a depth that just can't come from other places. And when you look nutritionally at this plant, it's the only one I'm aware of in nature that has the amino acids um, that it does existing in the proportions that the human body naturally requires. That says something that's, profound that's, about a plant versus anyone else's. Exactly. And, and what we have found over the years, like I think this first occurred to me when I was offered hemp milk, and I was like, what do you mean hemp milk? Before I even had any idea what was going on with hemp, but the first taste was one that just drew me back, like what is this going on? And I get the same phenomenon when I bite into to hemp as part of a dish. There's something that it feeds. It's something that almost at a, a cellular level that it is feeding that others don't uh, provide, you know, a level of satisfaction or whatever. So um, the challenge is to, I guess, as, uh, assuage people's uh, concerns, like, am I going to fail a drug test? No, you're not. It's, you know, you eat a little bit of hemp, it's basically going to just give you more yeah. nutrition exactly. than you might otherwise have if you ate a, a mushroom or a, like a donut, you know, something like that. <laughs> um, but. 
other things like you know am I somehow you know close to breaking the law no we were playing by all of the rules that have been set up um, you know from a moral perspective it just makes total sense that a plant that is this useful and this will say harmless uh, and this beneficial to mankind it's crazy to have it sitting as a Schedule One narcotic, or at least grouped as a Schedule One narcotic, right. with a plant. There, we can argue whether or not marijuana, you know, has, you know, evil aspects. But all that aside, this plant does not. This plant is just an agricultural commodity and needs to be, you know, treated as such. And like any agricultural commodity, there are opportunities that are just waiting for the right people to to bring to bear. So our particular focus is to uh, treat hemp like any other leafy green, perhaps a little more nutritious mm -hmm. than others, and find ways to have the profile, the flavor profile, match with what people want. So again, you tasted all the wild different flavors of, of mints and basils and um, greens and wasabis and all that that we grow. Um, there are so many different uh, characteristics that we could bring to, to bear and add in the, the, the I'm, I use the word depth, but just the, the earthiness that, that hemp has along with its nutritional uh, capabilities. That's what food is. Food, you know, really yeah. food is medicine is what it becomes. Yeah. Let medicine be your food and food be yeah. your medicine. That's it. I yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's definitely philosophy that we, we come from. Yeah, yeah. And we're here in Columbia, Tennessee, correct? We're about 45 to 50 minutes away from downtown Nashville, depending on how fast you drive or how open the, the highways yeah. are. Yeah. And this is a big facility here. Uh, this was at one time what? This was, I, I just spent two and a half hours this afternoon with the facilities, the former facilities engineer at this factory. General Electric built it in the early 1970s first to build full air conditioning units. It's, it, there's a sister factory up the hill from us where they assembled them. This factory was uh, used to build compressors for the air conditioners themselves. Um, it had multiple iterations of uh, manual and automated functionality and then um, they decided to sell the plant, move on to other things, and it sat idle for a little while. And then the company, I think they called it AccuRide, came in and started building wheels for the auto industry. Raw steel, robots, you know, sparks, <laughs> welding, you know, everything that one would assign to manufacturing uh, facilities, it, it took place here. And I wasn't here to witness it, but now I, I, there's so many people in Columbia who's who have either worked themselves or uh, you know my auntie or my grandma or my dad worked in this plant so there's so many stories that people have shared and I love taking them in now and seeing like the Garden of Eating as one of the doors exactly. of the room open up and yeah. it's a completely different uh, yeah. use. The building itself has 347,000 square feet in it. It's basically eight acres under a roof, um, 24 foot ceilings from pretty much end to end. Um, there are some incredibly sophisticated infrastructural systems here, but they're old enough that um, I'm not confident that we could really turn them on and do anything with them. I yeah. think that the best feature that this building provides is its structural integrity. And with that, then comes the challenge for us to build controlled environments that allow mm -hmm. us to optimize what we're trying to do, which is mm -hmm. grow plants that yeah. are good to eat. And you have the capability of expand, expanding, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. a I lot. Mean, yeah. I think from the hemp perspective, um, growing the, the fresh leaf 
is, is certainly uh, an area that we can most easily and readily introduce this food into people's lives. Um, but behind that are these amazingly broad variety of ways that hemp can be infused in other products. So um, things like juice is like an easy one. Uh, cold press hemp juice, mix it with other things like the flavors of stuff that we grow and you've got a beautiful product in and of itself. There's a company in Holland that's been doing that for several years now called Sana and, and they have really become quite successful in, in so doing. It hasn't happened yet but it goes back to that original motivation that I shared with you that juicing this plant and all of the compounds that are associated with it can really help touch the endocannabinoid system uh, exactly. of our bodies and bring some element of balance. One of the things I'm very hopeful about is the new legislation in Tennessee that allows more extensive research to be done by universities to help quantify and prove that this stuff is, is what anecdotally is turning out to be the case. Yeah. So if you can say, hey, I got a statistically significant study that shows if you drink this uh, juice or if you eat this particular product, these set of uh, maladies or conditions will be, if not alleviated, they'll be somewhat, you know, uh, I guess modified or at least handled, I don't know what the right word is, uh, but, but you're going to be able to deal with different conditions. Um, and I think that just like any pharmaceutical study, if you are allowed to measure um, the effectiveness of any input into your lives, then this new set of legislation exactly. will allow mm -hmm. more of that to come true. And as I've discussed it with Dr. Altman at the, uh, at the Botanical Medical Lab, um, he's of the mind that in the next several years, people who are going to ingest hemp are going to be clamoring for the flowers uh, and, uh, and the seeds simply because the flowers are going to be the central uh, collection point for the terpenes of flavor. And, and when we smelled the, the stuff from the field today, you, you really get a sense of how intense that is. <laughs> exactly. But also the level of cannabinoids that are uh, available in them. But it, but it doesn't stop there. The compounds are, I think, uh, hemp, uh, if you go to the USDA website, you'll find something on the order of 400 phytonutrients that are available in hemp seeds, per se, which are going to be tied to those flowers. Um, you know, perhaps the leaves don't have so much. It remains to be seen. I think there's a lot more testing that can be done to, yeah. to start to quantify what it is. But the work that's been done today, you know, again, USDA will, will accept as an authority, um, it's a lot. 400 yeah. is a lot exactly. of different things. And each of those phytonutrients, phytochemicals, is something that can step in and help with a particular condition or just kind of make the person whole again. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so you're doing a fantastic job. How many guys, how many people we have working with you here? Um, right now, we're probably at a peak. We have a couple interns uh, that uh -huh. are working for uh, for the summer. They're okay. probably only good for another week and a half before they go okay. back to school. Um, but there's a core set of myself, um, a farm manager, a farm assistant manager, and my wife does the deliveries. Everybody does and customers. Who's your wife? Oh, Veronica. Yeah. Veronica. Yeah, Veronica. Yes. She's so, a lovely woman. Uh, I'm glad, I'm glad <laughs> you think so. Um, but yeah, we all wear a, mazillion, a gazillion different hats depending on the situation. And um, you know, you're just 
facing all the challenges that any startup would do, which is complicated because of yep. you're dealing with live entities. You're, you're, exactly. you're dealing with live plants in an indoor fashion. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of plates to, to spin, okay. a lot of balls to juggle. and. Um, it's it's not boring. If anything, no, no, there's that's always sure. <laughs> you know you you get to exercise every aspect of your brain yeah. as you try to to stay afloat and figure out how you can you know bring this in an efficient manner, an effective manner, costs you know cost oh yeah, and all comes into play. Yeah. Well, Ed, listen, I'm going to thank you for being a guest on the iHemp Revolution podcast here with me. And uh, is there any last things you'd like to say to our audience? Um, Freddie's a cool guy, and the, and the car is killer. I read about it, and the until I saw it last night, it's like, oh, that is a happening car. Yeah, so you're talking a, about my 1966 Austin Healey 3000. Yes, okay, so that that part is is definitely cool. Um, this is a, a new, wonderful, uh, hugely optimistic industry. I'm, I'm extremely optimistic that there is something fundamentally sound that hemp can do uh, for every aspect of our economy, our, our nation's economy, but for human health, for um, just sustainability for the planet, equity for people where jobs can be had that, that have maybe gone exactly. offshore. Yeah. You think about this factory, why is it empty? This factory is empty because of policy changes that took place really through the 90s and manufacturing facilities just kind of went away. And there are very few places in the country now that you know are this big that do anything. They're, they're all in China, for that matter. Um, having hemp be a fundamental component of rebirthing um, an economic vitality into the community, this community and any other community, um, using indoor agricultural methods as we do, but it doesn't have to be. It could be in any, any, any um, component of that. Um, I think there's really... Um, a lot to be excited about, a lot to be um, just uh, motivated and inspired about, and we're trying to do our little part. Okay, well, thank you very much, Ed, and thank, thank uh, you. I know you're going to do great here. Thank, thanks for the opportunity. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. And make sure that you subscribe to the iHemp Revolution podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Give us a review and follow us on facebook.com forward slash iHempRevolution. Like us and then tell your friends. Help us spread the word about how using industrial hemp can benefit people, heal the planet, and provide long-term profit. This is your host. Coach Freddie, inspiring people to do things that inspire them, and thanks for joining the iHemp Revolution.